I'd like to draw your attention then tonight to the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21. It's a beautiful chapter, and I've titled my sermon tonight, Heaven on Earth. That is our final destiny, heaven on earth, a place of beauty and wonder and splendor, a place to enjoy God both now and forever. These verses, therefore, take us into that great world. And I, I put it to you that we, we, we don't think about this often enough. I found these words in C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become ineffective in this. There is another world. This is the temporary one and will give way to a glorious dwelling for God. What sobers me about reading C.S. Lewis, he was writing these things about the time I was born. And if it was bad then, what would he say about the day that you and I live in? Let me see if I can show you from these verses something of the world that will come to earth and the glory and whet your appetite, Paul says to the Colossians, isn't it? Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, and please notice it's a command, an exhortation. It's your business. It won't be done for you. Set your mind. Let us tonight, by God's grace, consider this passage under a new place, a new promise, and a new provision. A new place, a new promise, and a new provision. The first two verses describe the new place. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Lovely words if you understand them. I've been preaching through the book of Revelation, and one of the things that I've been struck with over and over is the enigmatic language of the book of Revelation. And I've come to the conclusion that it was quite deliberate. If you remember the circumstances, John himself is imprisoned on the island of Patmos. The emperor, who may well be Domitian, some people think it was Nero, but Domitian was every bit as wicked as Nero. The emperor was anti-Christian at the time. And yet John had had to leave behind the church at Ephesus and the seven churches which you see at the beginning of the book. If you look on a map, actually they're in a circuit from Ephesus that comes back to Ephesus. John is seeking to minister to the saints. If he speaks very directly, he will lose his life. If he speaks very directly, those who read them will be in danger of losing their life because they will have offended the emperor. So John writes to them through the lens of the Old Testament. And as he speaks all the way through this book, you almost need to have your Old Testament open, especially Ezekiel and Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, 
because he assumes that the readers will have those things in their mind as they read what he's saying. And they will see through them the hope and the promises that tyrants too will pass, that God's kingdom will be established. I've enjoyed going through Revelation. It's a fabulous book and I recommend it to you. Get a good commentary. You do need one to help you understand the insights and bits and pieces and where it's coming from. There are good books available which will show you the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. I have one by, is it Don Carson? Which will actually help you to see where the, these ideas are all coming from. I found it very helpful. But I have to tell you, at chapter 21, most of the trouble's already over. Christ has returned, chapter 19. There's been a final judgment. Chapter 19 tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb and then goes on to tell us about the destruction of the enemy. Let's always remember that our enemies will be destroyed. If they continue through life without Christ, there will be no place in glory for them. Shut out in darkness, gnashing of teeth, pain, horror and sorrow. But Christ's kingdom has already been established and will be fully established. And that's where he wants you to begin to think in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Life's apparently endless battle with sin has a sell-by date. Will be taken off the shelf and will be no more. Doesn't that just want you to go, wow. We may not have as much trouble as some people in some parts of the world, but we have our own troubles. And they're yours. And they trouble you. And they're uniquely almost designed for you. So the very thought of a day when all this is past must surely be winsome and attractive. It's not that we're waiting for, what is it they say, pie in the sky when you, when you die. The truth is, you see, these verses give us cake on our plate as we wait. They show us the sweets that are there for us. And they encourage us to look forward. Believing all that God has said and promised. That there is a place where sin's curse will finally be removed. And God himself, as I'll come in my second point, will be immediately present. But let me stick to these two verses as I have them before me. What you need to notice as you look at them, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. In the Greek language, there are two words for new. There's one which means brand new because it never existed before. And there's the one which is used here. Which means something that was old and has been replenished and in modern language, recycled. There is to be a recycled heaven and earth. And in that recycling, all that's sinful and unpleasant, look at the words, the first heaven and first earth had passed away. In chapter 20, it talks about the judgment and they flee from the face of God. Peter tells us, doesn't he? Chapter 3, verse 13 of Second Peter 
We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That will be the difference. Righteousness is one of those big technical words, isn't it? You can spend a while just studying it, but I like to just look at it and think rightness. Everything that's right, because God is right. Everything that's good, because God is good. And that's to be the condition of our future dwelling place. But if you notice, Peter said, we according to his promise. And I would imagine that as the first century readers read this book, they knew some of those promises. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Or come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name will remain. Recycling is very much a modern term, isn't it? Whether it works fully or not, it's something we're all familiar with. The junk you put in the bin could come back to you as a plastic bag or some other container. Our trouble is we have to put it back in the bin because it's not perfect. The day is coming, dear friends, and this should excite you when this very world itself will be transformed and all that's wrong and sinful removed, Jesus Christ established as King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning and ruling over a world which we will enjoy and in which we will know him and bless him. The Bible encourages us to keep on looking forward for that day. I hope you're familiar with Romans chapter 8. There's a lovely section in the middle of it from verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because he who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with expectation. And verses like that challenge me. We eagerly wait for it. What's the best thing that could ever happen to you? We've all got a list, haven't we? Modern men and women are encouraged to have bucket lists. Ten things I must do before. I suggest to you that those bucket lists have only come about since men and women have lost sight of what God has promised. You see, modern generation lives for today and tomorrow at the most. 
And they've got to pack as much as they can into their miserable little packet of existence. The Christian sees beyond, looks beyond, expects beyond, anticipates the day when the whole world will be absolutely, completely and utterly destroyed. If you go back to the the, the verse, you'll see there it says also there was no more sea. That for me indicates immediately that this is a book of, of mystery and picture. I can hardly imagine a new heaven and a new earth without sea. We will still need water. For the Jew, the idea of the sea was quite different. They were a technically a landlocked people. The sea that would be nearest to them would be what we call the Mediterranean. And they were always in fear of being lost on the sea. That's why things like the book of Jonah are so remarkable. Jonah was determined to run away from God that he would face life's greatest danger. The sea was thought to contain a monster which devoured those who went into it. And for that reason, it's then used in the picture, uh, in the the scripture, as a picture of all that's dangerous and unpleasant. And so while it says here there's no sea, it doesn't mean that God's drained the planet. But it tells us there's nothing to threaten us. Earlier on in the book, I think it's chapter 16, the beast rises up out of the sea. It's a place of danger, a place of terror. It's a place of worry. They didn't have modern ships. They went where the wind blew them and they were were at the mercy of it. You've only to read the account of the Apostle Paul going to Rome. That was a very twisted and torturous journey. And at one point they thought they were all dead. The promise that there's no more sea is a promise that the new heaven and new earth will have nothing there to endanger us. Again, think back to the first century readers of this book. They're surrounded by Roman soldiers who in their brutality would take pleasure in murdering them slowly. You've only to read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs and other accounts from the first and second century to see how horrific men and women could be. It's not my job tonight to terrorize you. Go read it for yourself. Be familiar with first century church history understand that the promise that there would be no more danger no more threat would have given would have resulted in a great sigh of relief and a longing for the day when it was all past he moves on from the new heaven and the new earth to tell you that he has a further vision i saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem. This is a phrase which is quite significant in this part of the scripture. In the Bible, we know where Jerusalem was, in the middle of the land of Israel. It was the city of David. But in the Bible... Zion and Jerusalem are also a picture for the community of the people of God. Because a city only becomes a city when it's got inhabitants, people to live in it. 
And you find over and over in the New Testament then that the saints, while they enjoy and and benefit from the literal Jerusalem, they're looking for a new Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews is one of the great examples. Chapter 12 and verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Chapter 11 and verse 10 speaking about Abraham, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Chapter 11, verse 16, now they desired a better city, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, this picture of a city coming down is actually a picture of the whole company of God's people returning to inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. This is the you and me who have believed in Jesus Christ and through him have been saved. This is the final hope and confidence of the Christian. A new world with a new people. God, by his grace, when you became a Christian, made you a whole new creation. A slight translation of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a, she is a new creature. God has prepared you for this city. But go on further and follow the text. It says this city is coming down out of Jerusalem, prepared as a bride for, his, for her husband. Immediately that tells me that this city is not bricks and mortar. You don't put a wedding dress on a building. So you need the lens of scripture to help you understand. Where else would you go to find the Bible talking about the bride? And especially the bride of Christ. One of those passages as husbands duck from. Ephesians 5. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it goes on to describe the church as his bride. The church as the people of God whom he's purifying and washing. What for? For this day. When the wedding supper of the Lamb comes to its culmination. It is mentioned in chapter 19 and I believe what comes in between is a parenthesis. So now what we're seeing is the final glory of every Christian, of every child of God. It's described in greater detail in verses 9 through 14. Beautiful and splendid, just like a bride on her wedding day. Attractive and winsome. The question then, dear friend, is that your confidence and hope? Do you consider yourself to be part of the people of God? The whole wide world community of every believer which is not just here today but right back through history and right forward to the very day when this happens every child of God will come to dwell on the new heaven and the new earth the future is certain we're going to be living in a real new world we're going to be in 
that place with all our brothers and sisters? Are you looking forward? You may have holidays planned. It's a bit early in the year yet, isn't it? But if you've got holidays planned, you're making preparations, are you not? It might be that you've only got the tickets lying in a drawer somewhere. But as the day gets closer, you get more and more aware of the sense that you need to be ready for it. You pull the suitcase out the loft. You find the clothes that you're going to take with you and you decide what's going and what's not going. You're prepared to take the journey to the train or the plane or whatever else it's going to transport you. All the time you're having to think ahead and plan. Can I ask you, dear friends, are you thinking ahead and planning for this day? What would it look like? You would want to be as close to God as a safe sinner could be. You would want to be listening to him. You would want to have him. Can I use the suitcase? Unpacking the rubbish out your suitcase and putting the right stuff in. I'm an old married man and one of the joys of going on holiday is my wife packs my suitcase. How did that come about? Because I used to put everything in. And then I found out by experience she was right. Our lives are full of distractions, pleasures, and all sorts of things. But the question is, are they the sort of things that we would want to have with us in glory? So the question here, dear friends, is, are you packing your case? Another question you might ask are, it relates to the idea of holiday, if I can continue to use it. Usually when you're going on holiday, your friends and neighbours know. I know some people sneak away privately, but they're usually the exceptions. I remember when I worked in industry, it would be quite a common conversation point. Are you going on holiday? Where are you going? When are you going? When are you coming back? And generally, you'd be only too glad to spend a minute or two telling. You see, if I'm going to be in glory, if I'm going to enjoy all this, and there's space enough for everybody who wants to come, then somewhere, somehow, it's going to be leaking out. Not everybody's an evangelist. I like the, the, the way that the Lord Jesus didn't say we've all to be evangelists, but we are all witnesses, testifying to what we know and what we've seen. Looking forward means that we will seek to encourage the growth and development of the Church of Jesus Christ have become aware in recent times that, that people are being converted and, and not becoming part of the local church. I don't understand why. Because it's in the local church that the Lord Jesus makes himself known and prepares us for glory. Because that's what life's about. Christian life is about looking forward. In fact, to quote C.S. Lewis in his definition of hope, he defines it like this, a constant looking forward to the eternal world. A constant looking forward to the eternal world. Oh, dear friends, that, that would be in your reckoning and in your mind and in your heart 
and that we might use it to warn any who are not yet coming with us that their, their future is dark, desperate and miserable. Did you read verse 8? There's a horrible list of horrible people in the middle, but the first and the last make my knees tremble. Cowards and liars. Very few people have never told a lie. And when people tell me they haven't, I usually think they're lying. The only way to be in that city is to have a personal faith in Christ, trusting him, casting all your mercies. You'll still have questions, you'll still have problems, you'll still have things to work out, but you know him. And you know he's faithful. Let me show you that there's a fabulous new promise attached to this new earth. In verses 3 and 4, he says, And I heard a loud voice. From heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall, not, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Look at the picture that is in the scripture here. Not only a beautiful new world with beautiful new people, but constant fellowship with a living God. There are those who think that this new earth and new world is in fact a return to the Garden of Eden, how it was originally. And one of the things that always intrigues me as I read Genesis is that just at the time Adam and Eve are sinning, God is walking in the garden. And the way the language is constructed, it shows us that this was his normal practice and habit. And therefore, I want to argue that Adam and Eve knew God personally and talked with him daily. And that's what we lost through sin. Your sins and your iniquity have caused a separation between you and your God. That's the gap the cross bridges. And through faith in Christ, we now talk to our Heavenly Father every day. And often more than once. But we still live in a broken world with broken bodies, broken circumstances, broken people, and, and somehow the, the, the awareness of God is interrupted. The beauty of what's written here is all that will be history. And we will have, once again, that full, personal, in, individual awareness of God himself. The God who demonstrates his own love towards us. So that he gave his son while we were still sinners, so that we could have a place in glory. A God who loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin. The God who is so much concerned for his people that he wants them to be there because he himself will enjoy that communion with men and women. Heaven's chief delight then will be the immediate presence of God. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, you know what that means, that means take a look. 
Stop what you're doing. Behold. Pay attention. The tabernacle of God is with men. That's a phrase that, or the word tabernacle is a phrase that every Bible reader is familiar with. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and he gave instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle. Do you remember the purpose of a tabernacle? Why did God want to have a tabernacle? So that he might dwell in the midst of his people and that they, those sinners, might have fellowship with him. It was a very elaborate system, wasn't it? Different sacrifices, different officials to apply the sacrifices and only once a year to enter into the Holy of Holies so that actual contact with the Most Holy at his footstool was a pretty rare occasion. Here we're told that God's going to tabernacle with men. The picture of the tabernacle develops into the temple. But then the temple is destroyed, rebuilt by Herod. It's never again the temple that it was designed to be. And in John chapter 1 and verse 14, you get a very intriguing verse in the scripture. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, you need to go back to the original language. In John 1, 14, when it says, he became flesh and dwelt amongst us, the Greek word is tabernacled. So the God who was present with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple came personally to be, to be present with men in the person of Jesus Christ. So that we might learn again what's involved in having a personal relationship with God. Realizing we're sinners. Finding in Christ the sacrifice which makes atonement for our sins. Finding in Christ the way back to God. And then lo and behold when he departs he leaves the Holy Spirit. And every Christian becomes a tabernacle of God. To be accurate a temple. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So that God has been present with his people. And all I can think is that that presence is never as clear and, 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 and perfect as I would like it to be. Why? Because I'm me and you're you. The promise of the future is the tabernacle of God is with men. That's Christ. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. Listen, God himself will be with them. Can you imagine being constantly in God's presence? Right now I'd run a mile. But in Christ I can draw near to God. In the sure hope and confidence that he will draw near to me. Look at these verses. God will be with them and be their God. And look, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things, like the sea, have passed away. The beauty and the wonder of this is not only a, a God to admire, but a God to enjoy. A God to be in communion with, a God to be in personal awareness of. 
those early Christians must have been going, wow. Those early Christians must have been thrilled to read those words. And I think you and I need to be, to be encouraged to find that thrill afresh in the present day. To see the glory, to enter into the power of it. Wipe away every tear. You know why tears come. There are some that might say there are tears of joy, but that's not the context here, is it? It's the tear of sorrow. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering. You know, one of the joys of getting older, I was talking to somebody earlier, is this old bag of bones gets more and more difficult to manage. You've done nothing different, and suddenly you've got an ache, a pain somewhere, somehow. I look forward to such a day. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Again, the Old Testament comes in, Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of the people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. God said it, it will happen. Isaiah 65, 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. That's the future. A beautiful, incredibly difficult to describe world where God is as close to you as you are. You can see why you need a saviour, don't you? In your present state, like me, you're unfit to be in God's presence forever. But in Christ, you're accepted in the beloved. In Christ, we have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you who are kept. Dear friends, I want to just send you home tonight with these thoughts rattling through your brain, rattling through your mind. This is not just, well, I'd like to happen. In our prayer meeting, we do a short Bible study on Thursday night, and, and we were talking about the word hope. We're all familiar with it, aren't we? And I asked the folks to tell me the difference between hope and hope so. Too many of our hopes are hope so's. If this happens, that will happen. Maybe it won't, maybe it will. But when you find in the Bible the word hope used, it has no uncertainty attached to it. It's fixed. It's a guarantee. It's safer than money in the bank. Why? Because when this world gets recycled, the banks are going as well. You know, gold's so insignificant, they use it to cover the pavement. Did you read that as you went through the chapter? The streets were paved with gold. It's of no consequence anymore. My dear friends, are you ready for that beautiful, beautiful future? How do you get ready? Make sure that you have a right relationship with God today. Christian, if you're professing to be a Christian, there was a time in your life when you became a Christian but if you have to go back to then to remember what it was like to be a Christian, you're off the rails. What you need 
is to be able to say to God every morning when you get out of your bed, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Every night as you go to bed, thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Clearly I've abbreviated, but it's in there, isn't it? A, a, a sense of being a child of God and a privilege that it, that it has makes us look forward. And what a miserable, miserable outlook for the unbeliever. For me, one of the hardest teachings in the Bible is hell. But I can't get away from it. It's there, isn't it? Verse 8 shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't want to frighten anybody into the kingdom of heaven. Nay, rather, I cannot. It's a work of grace. But part of that work of grace is God saying, there is a real hell, don't go there. Modern people don't want to talk about it. Understand that the person in the Bible who talks about it most is the Savior who hung on the cross to save you from it. He came here to tell you hell is real and not to go there. Oh, dear friends, let me go on to the new provision because time never waits for me. Not only is it a new world, not only is it personal in our relationship with God. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. It's those two last words I really want to get us down to. Becoming a Christian is the most significant thing you do in your life. You're delivered from sin and judgment. But you're not only delivered from sin and judgment, you're brought into the family of God. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become what? Children of God. Who were born, and I'll abbreviate it, by the will of God. God came to bring us back into the family that was supposed to be our dwelling place. And as I read these words, I need to, to, to get my head around this great privilege of being a, a child of God, not just a slave, not just a, a worker. Galatians 4, 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. An heir is somebody who's been written into somebody else's will. If you come from affluent Families, there might be somebody who's written you into their will. One of the reasons our New Testament is called a New Testament is because that word actually describes a will. You know when somebody writes a will, it's their last will and testament. So what you have in the Scriptures in the New Testament is in fact 
God revealing what he plans for his family at the end of the ages. I listened to a sermon online last night and he was exhorting me to remember that God is holy and God is righteous and that there should always be a sense in which we will have awe and fear of our Heavenly Father. But he made it very plain and clear. He is our Heavenly Father. That we do have this unique privilege laid upon us. One of my books tells me that this is the only place in the book of Revelation where the word son is used. It's significant. It's important. It's to be depended upon. It's part of the wonderful, awesome promises of God. Run your eye back just a little bit. I want to just underline. Oh dear. Underline the end of verse 5. Right, for these words are true and faithful. It's interesting how often John is told to write. I think it's four or five times in the book. You see, God had a message for the early church, but he knew that this church needed to hear the same message. And so holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to write. And so that these words were not only for our ancestors, they're for us. And if we're allowed any descendants they're your they're your inclusion in God's last will and testament he wants you to understand it they are true, they are actually accurate and then the word faithful is what I want to try and pause for a minute what does faithful mean? it's not just a name for an old dog faithful means that he actually does what he says. God is faithful. You can take the words out of his life, out of his mouth, as absolutely certain they will happen. And it's interesting that that's right in the middle of this passage, because if you're like me, the idea of a new world, living in God's presence, being a child of God, wow, that's mind-blowing. Will it really happen? Yes. God is faithful. God is faithful and he's been working his purposes out down through the years. And his purposes will be the ones that settle. Then notice just in my last comments, verse 7, he who overcomes. The tendency is to drag us down and to bring us into despair, to to make us forget. (coughs) And then we have to remember that we're involved in a spiritual battle. There's a fight. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty under God to bring down strongholds. We are to take the word of God and apply it to ourselves. You'll soon forget the sermon. You'll soon forget the preacher. But God says, hide my word in your heart. Underline in your mind, these passages. And recognize this is my future. This is my, this is my glorious outcome. There will be challenges to overcome. There will be problems that will be encountered. Wealth, health, work. But when you know fine well that you have an inheritance, 
that you're an heir of God. It gives you the grace and power to steer on faithfully through the storm and to come out at the other side. Your Father has made promises which he will most certainly fulfill. When the writer George MacDonald was talking with his son, it said in this book, the conversation turned to heaven and the prophets. It seems too good to be true, the boy said at one point. And apparently a smile crossed Mr. MacDonald's whiskered face and he says, nay, it's just so good it must be true. It's just so good it must be true. Are you looking forward? Unbeliever again, I want you with me. The reason I stand here and make a fool of myself in preaching is because I know that this is God's ordained purpose and plan that people will hear these words from the mouth of a man and that he will use these words by the power of his spirit to bring you into the kingdom. Don't resist them. Don't make him push you any further. This is the day of salvation. Flee to Christ. Join us. There's plenty to go round. Because the day is coming when there'll be heaven on earth. An old man was asked whether he expected to get to heaven. Why? He says, I'm there already. As they say of the old Puritan, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. My prayer is that heaven will be in me and you. And it will show and infect this miserable, sad society that think this is all they have and all they'll ever have. Amen.